Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty, g'day Steve, how are things? Good Pete, good, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. So today an exciting uh, subject, a very topical one, modern monetary theory, MMT is probably an easier way to say it, Uh, something that's been getting a bit more mainstream traction in recent years, not least because of what's been going on around the world in terms of economies not operating at their full capacity. So let's kick straight into it, Steve. So why don't you introduce us a bit of history? What is modern monetary theory and how did it come about as a uh, as a thesis? It's sort of an outcrop, if I can put it that way, of Keynesianism. So that's where that's it sort of history. It goes back longer. It goes back further than that. Um, and I won't go into too much boring detail. Essentially, the point being, as you know, it's caused a lot of controversy lately because it's given um, rise to this thing such as government spending, which has a political element to it as well as an economic element. Modern monetary theory, though, the, the, the argument from their side, if I can put it that way, is saying, well, as an economic theory, we are actually just describing what goes on. So, in other words, what they say is, it's, it doesn't recommend policy description uh, prescriptions. It's just a description of the economy, ideologically neutral, if you can put it that way. The short argument is what MMT says is governments can spend up until full employment of resources. So if you want to do things, you've got to harness the resources to do it. And MMT says if the private sector is not doing it for whatever reasons, government should step in. So they talk about a job guarantee or... Yeah, so this is, I guess, quite topical then for Australia because we have seen, uh, well, since the peak of the mining boom, really, we have not seen um, full employment since around, I guess, 2012-13. The government is continually... Uh, promise to return to surplus uh, to try and balance the books and be uh, prudent managers of the budget and so on. But we've never got back to full employment and now another recession and there's heaps of slack in the labour force. So I guess the MMT argument would be um, expansionary fiscal policy um, and uh, essentially government spending on projects or whatever else um, financed by um by the government to try and get us back to a period of full employment um so why wouldn't a government do that um are they just uh, relying on uh, the central banks to do all of the heavy lifting what, what why would a government focus on getting back to a surplus 
Yeah, the, it went sort of weird, if I could put it that way, in basically when Thatcher and Reagan came in, and here it was uh, Hawke and Keating in early 80s, Thatcher in the late 70s. Essentially what happened, Pete, was after the war there was lots of rebuilding because, you know, Europe was uh, in tatters, the UK was the same, you know, we had the World War. So we spent a big period rebuilding Europe with things like Marshall Plans and the governments were in, most governments had a deficit. What happened was it struck a snag in the, the sort of early 70s and we then had stagflation. And so what happened after that was when Thatcher came in with the revolution of, you know, regular um, deregulation and privatisation and all that sort of stuff. And so debt, apparently, you know, the government debt went from being seen as acceptable to then actually sort of being unacceptable. So Keynesianism fell by the wayside and you got into a lot of the, the sort of supply side economics. Um, so, you know, let the free market reign, global trade, all that sort of thing. And it was it's, it's quite interesting in terms of markets because from 19, you know, you had the bull market in the US from 1982 and from about 1972 to 74, there was a, a real a bad time in markets and they crawled along for about seven or eight years before they got... Um, before they started going off, you know, in the early 80s. It just sort of morphed into, you know, I'm not sort of getting political, but the the ideology changed in terms of what government should or could do. And so it became a lot more about, well, government should just get out of the way and let the private sector operate. So that then morphed to, well, the government shouldn't spend money, it should actually have a surplus, but the argument is that's all right, but in order to grow an economy, if the government is not injecting new money through fiscal policy, as you said, then private sectors have got to borrow. Now, that leaves consumers to borrow or industry to borrow. Industry borrowing is not that bad because it's, it's premised on investing for future growth and for jobs. What we've had happen in a lot of places is because wages have been low, people have been forced to borrow and they've been forced and with the borrowing, they're then speculating on property and stocks and that sort of stuff. Yes, I think uh, one of the key things that's changed and uh, it's it's quite hard to even imagine today, but certainly when I was uh, growing up in England, inflation was absolutely tearing along and um, Margaret Thatcher came to power. Uh, there was there was controversy about the policies she put in place, but the the general uh, theory from the early nineties onwards was that central banks would start targeting inflation to bring inflation down. Um, so I guess from the, roughly what the mid nineteen sixties to the early eighties, there was very high inflation in the states, and the Federal Reserve started targeting inflation, brought it down to I guess between that time and today, it's averaged roughly, give or take, about 2%. Uh, we've seen same in Australia, certainly in the UK as well, much lower inflation today. So I guess the, the landscape has changed. Now, uh, my understanding is that inflation was brought down by central bank policy. So how does that fit into MMT? And is there a risk uh, if the inflation environment changes and we get high levels of inflation? Is there a shortcoming there potentially 
of um, government's ability or willingness to uh, target inflation in the same way. Yeah, the the thing that happened, the really big sort of event was particularly in terms of Austrian sort of economics was when we had the global financial crisis and governments went into, you know, huge deficits to bail out uh, banks and all of that sort of thing, lots of people went, oh, my God, it's going to be hyperinflation, there's going to be hyperinflation because, they're, you know, the governments are spending all this money and they're going to push prices up and it's going to be a disaster. And, of course, what happened was inflation was stone dead and has been ever since. And so the argument that, oh, well, government spending will cause inflation, is, as MMT argues, is only valid if you're already at full employment. But up until full employment, so you imagine like we've got now, we're recovering from the pandemic and there's lots of unemployed people, there's lots of part-time workers. We get lots of our stuff now from China so the government can spend up big and it won't generate inflation because there's no wages pressure. You know, there's two types of inflation, cost push and demand pull. Well, there's certainly no cost push going on. So there's the, the idea that prices are going to spike, it, it could happen if you get a supply side interruption, for example, you know, um, but it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get a cost push where, you're at full employment and it's like, you know, wages are going through the roof. Yeah, I guess the question is then, well, what, what would happen? Is there, an, is there effectively a funding constraint there? Because if inflation goes up to 5 or 10%, what happens in that scenario? Do you use uh, more tax to try and slow down the economy? I think, um, you know, and I guess like the, the, um, this is not my area of expertise by any means. So uh, I guess it's my intuitive position is kind of uh, I guess as a conservative type of person is that I I'm a uh, obstructive to change generally and uh, I guess it, even seeing you know the the sort of the left-wing media jumping on MMT almost universally in agreement sort of in, inherently makes me feel uh, wary about the idea plus some of the um, economists that I respect um, deeply like uh, Stephen Kirchner and Rajat Sood and people like that they they tend to be sort of uh, pretty critical of MMT. I, I think where my it's mainly a philosophical point more than anything. Actually, th- this will explain my my viewpoint. I, I saw an Ipsos poll recently uh, in the UK that basically said to a sample of um, 100 politicians uh, across the spectrum, um, if you toss a coin twice, what are the what's the probability? of um, two heads coming up. And only 23% of Labour MPs uh, could actually get that question right, and uh, which didn't completely surprise me looking at some of the, the numbskulls in the party. But then uh, the Tory MPs did hardly did any better. I think it was about 53% or something. And I guess this is part of my problem, is that uh, MMT seems to me to be quite a state-centric view. And I look at some of the people in government and I seriously worry about their ability to determine where money should be spent, what it should be spent on, when they don't, they a lot of them are, are barely numerate. And let, let's face it, we both know some very talented politicians, but there's also some idiots out there, and that's that's one of my concerns. Um, I, and actually, on your point on money creation, there was a famous issue some years ago in England um, where um, only a, a tiny percentage of politicians actually knew that banks could create money. And it makes you wonder if that's the level of understanding in political circles 
how much power or influence should be put in the hands of government and how much should just be left to central banks to manage aggregate demand? Yeah, I think my one criticism of people who who criticise MMT is they look at it from a neoclassical framework. So, and, and what I mean by that is people go, oh, MMT this, MMT that, and it's like, hang on, you're using a different yardstick to judge it. You've got to look, like you look at neoclassical economics, you can criticise it if you don't look at it within the theory. But And it's the same with MMT. The other thing is too, as MMT states, it's generally what they do now. So it's a description of what the central bank does. So let me put it to you this way. Here we were bowling along, both Labor and Liberals in Australia in the last 10 years, rabbiting on about a government surplus. Oh, I've got to get a surplus. Oh, I've got to get a surplus. Really, really got to get a surplus. That was the only thing they wanted to talk about in economics. they got to get a surplus. Lo and behold, we get a pandemic and Morrison pops up with, you know, squillions of dollars and no one says, oh, whoa, whoa, hang on, we've got to get a surplus, right? That's just gone straight out the window, right? Now, Why? because there was a necessity to bring money into the economy and the government just went, oi, go out the back there and, you know, put some ones and zeros in bank accounts and we'll fix it. Now, what they also didn't realise was when they gave unemployed people a lot more money, they went and spent it and that would have generated more employment. So those arguments, and what I mean by that is I'm not being political, what I'm simply saying is, look, there's no monetary constraint on the government. And what you, do, what you do is, or what I do anyway, is when you take a step back, and this is what we talked about in the last uh, podcast, was you get back to the point of saying, okay, and you just raised it before, what should we be actually spending the money on? If there's no monetary constraint, what's the constraint? Well, we want to use resources as efficiently as possible. Okay, if there's no monetary constraint and you think about it, you say, all right, well, should everybody have a house? Should there be homeless people? No. Okay, well, we should have, make sure everybody's got a property, okay? Whether it's, you know, a rental or everybody should have some accommodation. So it gets down to more ethical issues about saying, well, where should we spend those resources rather than saying we haven't got any money? Yeah, I think um, in a low inflation environment, there's going to be a lot of sympathy for that view, right? If governments are just effectively creating money and splashing it around every time there's a downturn, why aren't we just doing that permanently? It it feels to me like um, maybe a dozen years ago, everybody agreed that uh, quantitative easing would lead to a massive burst of inflation. And because it never happened, everyone's gone to the other side of the boat now and so well. There is no constraint on what governments can do. And it does certainly appear to be that way. I guess what, what I think intuitively it feels to me like the, the funding constraint may be simply an inflation constraint because if inflation goes up, uh, say, 10% or 15% and we're not at full employment, so what does the government do then? It can't. Uh, if it keeps spending, then we're just going to get more inflation. So um, I suppose that's uh, – and, and look, it's a theoretical – uh, criticism because at the moment we're in a low inflation environment. I think the other thing that feels to me somehow uh, intuitively unwelcome, I guess if I can put it that way, is that we've separated the independent um, central bank 
and that seems to have mostly worked well. I think if you look at the Australian um, economy, we've had arguably quite hawkish policy. I know everyone thinks that interest rates are low and therefore money's easy, but I guess we've um, we haven't really pushed the full employment uh, button at all uh, for for the best part of a decade now. And um, the idea that you know, but just by cheerleading more fiscal policy and more government spending, sort of it almost gives light to the idea that uh, monetary policy couldn't have done more, which arguably it could. But yeah, look, we've got the same issues in in the UK. Government borrowing in the December quarter has gone to the highest level it's ever been, and the national debt's now in the worst position. If you can, if you would say worst is the right word, since effectively the post-war years, and people are now questioning, well, if governments can create that much money, why have we gone through all these years of fiscal austerity? Why aren't we just printing money all the damn time? So, I guess that well, you know, th- those are my sort of intuitive objections. It, I, you know, and I guess um, I'm welcome, I'm happy to be told I'm wrong, but um, it feels to me like when inflation's low, then governments can do whatever. I just worry about the state-centric view. Yeah, I, I don't disagree, Pete. I think there's a there's an inherent distrust in politicians these days. Um, yes, and that, <laughs> yeah, look, I, I understand, but that you know, you've got it from a historical perspective. Politicians were very well respected and it was eroded because that was part of the issue to get government out of markets. You know, what did Reagan say? You know, government's part of the problem, not the solution. But what you see is, as a flip side, is that you see enormous booms and busts and you see enormous amounts of private debt. So in Australia where the government has said, you know, we're going for a surplus. It's like, well, that's okay, but we've got GDP. We've got debt at one hundred and eighty percent or one hundred and ninety percent of GDP. Now that that's well and good, so long as we can keep all the balls in the air. And so we haven't had that experience where we've struck trouble like um, you know the European countries and America did in the GFC. And so. Again, you know, you mentioned there before about, oh, you get a bit queasy about the national debt. How can you be queasy about a national debt that you create with your own money? So, in other words, if, some, if, I, said, if I said to you, Pete, the UK can go at the back and print a trillion-dollar coin and go, there you go, we paid off the debt. There it is. So, and what I'm, what I'm saying is people don't understand the debt's not a problem because they, they're the ones that it's in your own currency. Yeah, look, and I, I'm I'm prepared to accept. I probably need to update my views because certainly, back when I uh, was studying these things, uh, which is a million years ago, there was always this uh, kind of unspoken view that if you if you had too much debt, well, the cost of money would go up and it become very undesirable. Yeah. But actually, in Britain's case, um, well, the five year gilts last year went negative, and so well, that was that was never in any textbook that I've I've ever looked at that uh, you could ramp up the debt. Uh, and actually have a negative yielding government instrument. I just it just wasn't really thought about, uh, certainly to my knowledge. <laughs> so I guess though, there's, there's some things have really changed. Yeah, that was that mm. private debt, and that's where you've got to make the distinction that you and I don't have, you know, Wargent or Moriarty dollars or a currency. So we the pity. Yeah, we're constrained because we we are borrowers of money the government has unlimited because it's a um sorry i meant to say a currency 
um, users. And so when we get too much debt, quote, unquote, we've got to pay it back. But we don't pay it back with our own Moriarty dollars. It's like, no, 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 you've got to use the Australian currency, whereas the Australian government has its own currency. And so there's no constraint to say, oh, I can't borrow my own dollars. It's like, really, why not? Oh, uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't fit right. And the argument about, oh, it'll create inflation is valid if again, like we said before, you've got low un- you've got um, low unemployment, but if you had that, well, why would you continue to borrow more and more? Yeah, and look, uh, I guess as we outsource more work to Asia, but maybe the inflation risk is is a lot lower than what we thought, or certainly than what I thought. So, uh, yeah, I'm prepared to accept that. Um, one thing I might just um, throw in there is that. Uh, as a, a sort of a le- left field criticism is that um, obviously you lived in Japan for many years and um, I suppose, I mean, Japan for what, the best part of 20 years ran an enormous fiscal stimulus, probably um, prob- probably the biggest we've ever seen outside yeah. of, of wartime. And yet certainly sort of um, demand never really, uh, in nominal terms, never really picked up. So I, I suppose like, there is that side of things. Uh, let's let's say for the sake of argument then that MMT gets more traction. People start to come on board with this idea that, um, that, that MMT is going to become a bigger piece of the puzzle, potentially in Australia or globally. So how would that then in turn impact um stock markets and in turn the way that we should invest. So if government is going to invest in, for the sake of argument, infrastructure uh, projects or home building programs, um, are those the kind of uh, main beneficiaries in the stock market? I suppose the high level point is more money coming in from the government, good for stocks. But is there is there something a bit more to it than that that we should think about? But, uh, yeah, probably. I mean, if you go, if you go back through history, the thing that really makes stock markets go off is debt, right? You And what's debt? Debt's just new money that hits an economy. Um, if you've got an economy of 10 shekels and you, you borrow new money, you've got 12 shekels in the economy, so the economy expands. So when you look back at um, the big booms and busts in the stock market, a lot of it is created by uh, debt, and it just depends whether it's government debt or whether it's private debt. Um, the difference is, I think, that the areas of, I mean, this is my own personal thesis. So I, I think that what we'll find, and I, uh, you know, I'm happy to be corrected here, but my own position is there's too much private debt. Now, for that debt to be paid down, a la Japan, the government are going to have to step in and spend money to continue to keep employment while people pay down those debts. So, you know, if you had, you know, silly example, you've got, you know, 20 properties. At some point you say to yourself, well, listen, I've got to start paying these this debt down. Now you've got two choices. You can sell the properties if you want, but if you, in order to pay them down, the government will spend while you pay the debt down. Because you remember, you, you know, as you know, Pete, the more you pay in, repay in debt, the less there is to consume with in the aggregate economy, which means there's less demand. And so I, I think what we're going to have to do is you'll see 
a, a fair run of budget deficit to try and to try and maintain the economy while people pay down debt. And that's basically what the Japanese government did. It's what the Spanish government did. It was the Irish government did after the GFC. All that private debt was basically put onto the government books. So the government said, all right, well, look, we'll do all this. You guys just keep working and pay off those debts and we'll keep, you know, we'll keep the boat afloat. Yeah, and I think if you think back to, I mean, Australia went through a somewhat unexpected mining boom uh, from, I guess, the early 2000s and it ran, uh, certainly the construction phase ran through to, what, 2012 or 13 or so. And for a long period of time there, we had household incomes growing at, what, 6 7%. Um, so a bit of extra private debt in that scenario is not too damaging because effectively it's inflated away. You know, people are earning more every year. Uh, but Australia's wages and incomes really got a bit ahead of themselves. And um, since 2012-13, we've seen very low wages growth, which makes it very hard for people to actually pay back levels of debt. So, um, and this is a, probably a, a subject for another show. I mean, with all of this money that's being um, created around the world in various ways and means through QE and deficits, Potentially, maybe we're setting ourselves up for another commodities boom over the decade or two ahead. But um, I, I suppose at the time of speaking, that's a bit of an unknown. So I guess, uh, Steve, to wrap it all up, um, we'll try and knock this on the head in half an hour. It's a big subject. Um, so what what do you think are the key takeaways for investors? What should you be thinking about in terms of um, how to position yourself, your portfolio, uh, do you need to have more of an understanding of MMT or do you just need to um, have an investment approach for, that allows for potential changes in policy? Um, I think it's important to understand it basically because I, I do think it's going to become more and more mainstream over probably the next 10 to 20 years. E- economic theories usually run in about 30-year cycles. Uh, Supply-side economics has been running since the 80s. Um, but, you know, we've got to the point now where there's interest rates can't go much lower, you know, wages are stagnant, there's really no more solutions from the supply side um, that will that will remedy the problem. Um, there's already too much debt on the private sector, so particularly in consumers in Australia. Therefore, I think it's important to, you know, read up on it. Um, Stephanie Kelton's book, Uh, The deficit myth is probably one, you know, for people to read. And just think about how it fits into your your own investment framework. You know, might be might be infrastructure. I think, like you said, you know, like if we if we get a nation building program again, or they do in the US, which is you know desperately needed, then that will that will create a commodities boom. You know, and Australia could really get a second wind in the I think they call it you know the super cycle. You know, there's commodities in investing terms have been pretty flat to negative since about 11 or 12, as you mentioned, with the mining boom, when it tapered off. I personally think that's going to come back and, you know, that's going to be one area that people might want to have a look at um, going forward because, as I said, I think the governments are going to start spending some money and they're going to start doing the old-fashioned pump priming and start building stuff. Yeah, that that makes sense. I mean, uh... I think um, yeah, I'll, I'll still take some convincing that governments are the solution to 
to everything. And but I guess you know that's just a personal bias. I'm a private sector person. My parents were both public sector workers, so they probably see these things differently. Um, uh, and certainly in in Britain, there's all, there's been an endless debate about you know, the hundreds of billions that they go to the National Health Service and they never seem to fix anything. It seems to be a bottomless pit. But look, and you know maybe there's an argument that it it, it doesn't even necessarily matter about the efficient allocation if it's getting money out there into the economy and it's it's letting people spend and, and creating tax back that way so uh yeah there's um you know there's probably maybe the midpoint is where these things will end up but uh yeah i mean i i've um felt in certainly over the past decade that um, in australia the central bank has always been looking to the government to do more from fiscal policy uh it's been leaning against the wind of uh asset prices um it hasn't hasn't really worked and, and maybe uh, macro prudential measures um will be what happens as uh, central banks are forced to do more but look there's there's a, there's a whole lot to think about there and um, thanks for the book recommendation on stephanie kelton definitely one we'll put in the show notes so we've got a couple more episodes to do on this mini series of economics so we'll pick up that next time around and uh, thanks for joining and uh in the meantime, we should all start lobbying the local MPs for uh, uh, nation-building programs in uh, in Kedron and Noosa. <laughs> Cheers, mate. New bridge. New bridge. <laughs> Roads to nowhere. All right. Thanks for joining, everyone. We'll see you next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.